1: This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Research your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about the effects a vaccine rollout will have on the market, why we're so annoyed that Salesforce has bought Slack, and our favourite bricks and mortar companies, including this month's Stock of the Month. So before we start today's episode, I just want to mention that this is actually my first day back in the office after taking a few days of annual leave. So all the planning for this episode was left in the hands of Emmett and Rory. Um, as such, I'm recused myself of all responsibility... <laughs> for how this episode goes. Um, if you have any complaints, you can find both Emmett and Rory on yeah, Twitter.
2: Mate. Wait until this is the best episode, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be unruly. It's going to be shooting from the hip. It's just going to be so natural. It's going to be better, basically.
1: Rory, I anticipated you saying that. And it's if it's the best episode, I think you could probably claim it was the solid foundation I've laid over the last two years that has nurtured yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys <laughs> to the point where you can plan an episode by yourselves. All right, let's move on before anyone gets uh, insulted. So we'll start off with some good news today. Um, On Monday, Margaret Keenan became the first patient in the world to receive the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. This represents some real light at the end of the tunnel for the world in what has been a very, very tough year. And it also marks the completion of an incredible global effort to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. However, I think my favourite part about the whole thing was the fact that as soon as it came out that Margaret was originally from Ireland... Uh, the whole of the country was suddenly like, yes, we did it. We've cured coronavirus. You're welcome. Uh, there's no other country, I think, in the world like Ireland that will claim credit so tangentially for something. What do you guys think?
0: Oh, I don't know. I
2: can think of one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we did. We cured it, right? Um, uh, there's this really funny tweet floating around at the moment, which I'm sure most people have seen at this stage, about how what is Bill Gates going to do now that he has control of his first... Yeah, old <laughs> year old, you know, granny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, of
1: course, off the back of this news, the stock market jumped and it's touching new all-time highs again. I suppose we were to expect this, Rory.
0: Um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, like the market's just doing its thing for any good news at the moment. It's like, if it's not vaccine hopes, it's stimulus hopes. So yeah, look, the narrative has become a bit tired at the moment. Yes. <laughs> you know, every single day is another another hope springs eternal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we should point out as well that this, this the vaccine has just begun rolling out in the UK. It's still to begin rolling out in the US. And I assume, Emmett, when the FDA finally do approve Pfizer's vaccine or somebody else's vaccine, we'll see another bump in the market again.
2: Mm. I think what we're going to see is a glut of vaccines. So there'd be no problem with access to approved vaccines for virtually anyone in the world in a very short time period. I think... Um, we're going to have to, I think the response to knowing that vaccines are available will be a little more muted because uh like the world has still got to get their heads around how we're going to adjust. Um Like I think in the year ahead, mask wearing is going to become more normal than it ever has been to this point. For yeah. example, the way it is in many Asian countries, I think we're going to continue to see fewer business trips, more remote working uh, going on like forevermore uh i don't think 2021 will necessarily be the year for concerts or sporting events you know i just don't think it's going to get there just yet and then i think scientists and doctors are going to have to learn about the efficacy and effectiveness of vaccines when they're out there so there's still so many unknowns how will the market respond um i would go with cautious optimism i think that uh we we are we're at a, a juncture now where we can see that this is going to come to an end but it's not going to be binary it's going to be a slow steady I suppose revert to normal.
1: Yeah and you, you said revert to normal there and that actually tees up my next question perfectly you know we talk about the end of this pandemic and you know it looks very likely now that the pandemic will end in the next few months if not year but that I suppose doesn't necessarily mean going back to a normal or going back to you know where we were this time 12 months ago I've asked you guys this question before, but I'm curious to to kind of get your updated answer on this. You know, to what degree do you think things will return to bunny ears normal? And and what do you think are the things that have changed irreversibly and will never go back the same? Rory, I might come to you first.
0: Um, yeah, there's a quote that's often attributed to Lennon, but I actually think it was Scott Galloway, the, the Scottish MP, who said nothing can happen for decades and then decades can happen in weeks. Um, that certainly is what it feels like. Did you just happens- quote
1: Lennon on a podcast about the stock market? <laughs>
0: Yeah, look, I'm all for the crushing yoke of unchecked capitalism. But now and again, I can pull out an old Marxist quote. And as I said, it was wrongly attributed to Lennon James. Please listen. <laughs> uh, so where I see things, you know, I don't think that we're going to return to a normal. I think we're going to progress. You know, I think We've talked multiple times about, you know, the, the big leap forward that we've taken with the coronavirus. E-commerce has leapt forward 10 years. I don't think that's going to reverse. I think, you know, we, we look at the indexes and we see that the stock market is way up, but I think the index is often misleading. Those gains have accumulated to a few large firms, um, particularly the likes of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google, Microsoft, the big five. And when we come back, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of businesses that are still going to struggle to recover. Uh, we're going to end up in a world where there's um, more foliage and fewer elephants. Uh, there'll be a lot of co- uh, consolidation, I think. You know, there'll be a lot of bigger firms starting to buy smaller ones up with increasing yeah. frequency. Um, and, you know, that's just a function of, you know, people want, there's there's an element of we don't want to do this alone anymore. Uh, we're seeing a big rush of companies going public, either through IPO or SPAC. Founders and stakeholders are like, you know what? We don't want another March 2020. That was a very scary, worrying time for everyone, you know? And, you know, what does, what's the future hold, you know, when billions of dollars are on the line? I think the mood has definitely changed in terms of the amount of risk people are willing to take on personally. You know, I think they want to spread that risk around a lot. Um, and company, like the pricing companies has just gone crazy as well. Like companies are now being priced on their 10-year vision, which is handy for us because that's how we look at businesses. But like, you know, I know the argument against following Tesla as a car company, but like let's consider for a second... Tesla is now worth more than Toyota, Volkswagen, Daimler, and Honda combined. Wow. Um, Tesla is going to produce about 400,000 cars this year. Those other four are going to produce 26 million. So that's that's the way the company's being valued now. It's not being valued today. It's being valued at what's it going to look like in 10 years. And that's all about vision. And the companies that are able to sell a vision are going to be the ones that are going to do well in this particular market. I think telemedicine is going to be accelerated. I think teledoc's a great business to be in right now. That was insurance was always a bit reluctant to embrace that model, but you know that's definitely going to become a bunny years new normal. Um, print and TV advertising, I think, is ne- is going to have a tough time recovering, which is good news for yeah. Google and Facebook. And um, so there there is going to be a lot of changes. I don't think we I don't think this idea of going back to anything is is what's going to happen. I think we're going to move forward to. Kind of a version of where we are now. Um, I think there's still going to be a lot of social distancing issues. You know, like Emmett mentioned, we don't know the efficacy of these vaccines. We don't know how long immunity lasts. SARS immunity lasts two years. So that's a kind of good model to kind of think about. But again, we know so little. But yeah, I think you know, work from home is going to be a big thing as well. I, I like. This is already normal, really. You know, that's that's the that's the thing I think yeah. people need to understand.
1: Uh, absolutely. And Emmett, what about you? what What are you What do you think of the things that will never revert back to to what we experienced twelve months ago?
2: Mm. Well, it's kind of funny, like, so the the virus, as we, we, I think we all know, won't go away completely. So as we've discussed so many times before, remote working is the norm. And and as Rory said, this, what we're we're doing now is the new normal. Um, And for me, it raises the question of working from anywhere, which in turn raises the issue of pay balancing based on where you live and I, I, for example like a software engineer working for like a company let's say EA Games in well, Redwood City or San Francisco or wherever they are um, is probably paid more than a software engineer working for EA Games doing the exact same job in Bilbao City in Spain yeah and um, what that kind of implies to me is that um, in five years will software engineers just to choose a specific uh, profession be working from anywhere and therefore will there be a kind of global rebalancing of a workforce you know as to where people want to work and this will have a knock-on effect on rents and wages and all the hidden forces we accept today as normal and what I mean by that is it, we we four would perfectly or we three here on, on mic would, would perfectly accept that someone doing our job might be on double our salary if they're living in the middle of San Francisco City because that's where they live. I just think in five years time from now that that will be a less acceptable outcome. I think companies are going to have to think hard that if if someone rang in and said, hey, guess what? I'm moving from San Fran to Madrid, that that business basically cannot clip that person's wages. Yeah. So I just wonder how it's all going to play out. I think that is going to be one of the outcomes. And it's quite, a, I'm sure, a complex economic algorithm to figure out how that's going to go. But I see that as as emerging as one of the side effects of working from anywhere, which... As you said, Rory, is our new norm. this is the new norm
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that raises another interesting question, Emmet, which is about these decentralized workforces and the idea that companies don't need these massive campuses like Facebook and Apple and Google all have. Um, I know you, you've, you've been interested in a few kind of property management companies and REITs um, in your research for Horizon. Has your opinion on those types of companies changed? I know the new York um, or sorry the Empire State Trust was one of them you were looking at.
2: Mm. Empire State Realty Trust ERST was one I was looking at and it, it basically seemed to be suppressed down to life well it was down to five dollars and change and this REIT was about 26 bucks at an all-time high and it it basically in buying a share in this REIT you're owning a piece of the Empire State building and a whole bunch of surrounding um, skyscrapers and, and commercial real estate in New York City and yeah. a little bit further afield and you know there was an argument sorry, it wasn't an argument, it was plain to see that people were not going into the office uh, spaces. And I think the number I read is six million people crush into New York City every day and then go home on on, on the train. And, you know, this whole behaviour, when you stop and look, just now suddenly seems to be um, less relevant or less important. So um, Empire State Realty Trust, as you mentioned, appeared to me to be synthetically too low. It's not that that building, iconic building, is going to disappear and it's going to have a zero utility and i think it's it's rebounded up to like 10 bucks a share so it it was a pretty good investment just before the announcement of a vaccine which we all saw or felt was inevitable um But there's so many different types of REITs that you can go in on and they aren't just commercial real estate in the middle of cities. You can buy REITs in hospitals, you can buy REITs in in schools, you can buy REITs in hotels or even in adjacent, you know, industries to do with growing marijuana. So there's a lot of different REITs out there. Uh, But I still have a degree of caution on REITs concerned with getting people together to work. Yeah. you know, with the exception, of course, of hospitals and schools where people must go. Mm. Um But all, on other ones, I'd be, I'm still, the, the jury is still out, as they say. Absolutely.
0: Quick shout out to, uh, I just read uh, Scott Galloway's new book, which is actually called Post-Corona. So if anyone's kind of interested in some oh, yeah. ideas on what corona, the world's going to look like post-corona, it's a good
1: good one to pick up. Absolutely. Mm. Let's move oh, on yeah. from good vaccine news then to more sad news for our investors, at least. Um, last week was announced that Salesforce is set to acquire Slack in a cash and stock deal worth close to $28 billion. This is an acquisition that had been rumoured for a couple of days before the announcement. and It looks pretty certain to complete considering the close relationship between the two companies. Rory, I know you were pretty annoyed to see this deal happen, despite the nice premium we got in our position in Slack.
0: Yes. I know investors get excited when they see a company they own get acquired because, you know, you know, seeing your stock rise 60% in the space of a few days is nice. It's nice to make a quick buck, I suppose, but like I hate when companies are acquired from under us. I really yeah. do. Um, when we add companies, we think about them with a 10-year outlook. So, you know, and I used the, the example of Ellie May before, you know, Ellie Mae was a mortgage origination software that we had in the app, uh, was it two years ago at least now? Um, It got bought private by a company called Tama Bravo for about 3.6 billion uh, and they sold it about uh, like less than 18 months later for 11 billion. So like we really got (laughs) us. Got screwed. Yeah. Yeah. For want of a better term. Uh, So that's, that's when I always think about but I think about other companies like Mesa Robotics, MindBody were two great ones that we had in the app that got bought out from under us. Um, And uh, like I saw Slack, you know, thinking about Slack from 10 years from now. There was a huge opportunity there, um, and a lot more than what we're getting with the twenty-seven billion from Salesforce. The debate over Slack was always, you know, is it a chat client or is it an operating system? And at the moment, like in its current uh, iteration, it is mostly a chat client, but it's and it's being valued like that. But yeah. Definitely, the opportunity, like due to the integration of thousands of the applications, it has the opportunity to be an operating system. And, you know, think about the way that software used to be delivered, used to be licensed, used to be a major investment, and all that had to work on a local operating system, something like Windows or iOS. Today, that's not how software is delivered. It's hosted in the cloud. It's immediately trialable, you know, usually for free. It exists oftentimes kind of siloed among specific teams within an organization. And it's incredibly diverse. You can get some sort of software to pretty much do anything. And, you know, we know all about those in this business, definitely. So the ability to harness the power of those applications in one place was like an opportunity of untold fortunes, if you ask me, it was the future of how business was going to be conducted, not just within organizations, but across organizations. And Slack had the ability to be that. and that's where I saw the value in Slack. I believe that's where the investment opportunity was. And what's mad is that Salesforce saw it too. Like the CEO did say during the presentation, I quote, "This is the operating system for the new way to work." And yeah. if that's true, then they're getting an absolute deal. Like they are getting yeah. an absolute. They're stealing this from under us. Um, not that Slack didn't have its problems. Look, Microsoft Teams was a major uh, hurdle for them not just in terms of the pricing, the way they bundled it with 360 for free essentially, but like, but also in terms of Microsoft's relationship with vendors, they just had great distribution. You know, 20 years of free shrimp cocktails is a hard hurdle for a new player to get over. Um, (laughs) So like, uh, it's going to be a lot fairer fight now between Slack and Teams. But I really did like the kind of David versus Goliath thing we got set up there. I was one, I was hoping to kind of watch that play out over a number of years and uh, and see where the two landed because I, I I had money on Slack and now I don't sadly.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask, Rory. Like, if if you stand back then maybe from away from an investor's point of view and just as a, a kind of analyst's point of view, does it make sense for Salesforce to take Slack like this? You know, obviously it's their big play against Microsoft. And um, CEO Mark Benioff is a. A vocal critic of Microsoft. Mm.
0: Yeah, look, it, it it does make sense. I mean, from from Salesforce's point of view, uh, going through the presentation that they they gave after the announcement, they see it the way I see it. It's it's this is going to be the front-facing part of Salesforce's uh, offering to people, and in terms of you know, uh, enterprise software, Microsoft's obviously the big daddy. Google was you know, a, a challenger and Salesforce is now going to be a proper challenger because they are, I mean, they're all coming at it from different angles. Microsoft's from the productivity standpoint, Google is from the kind of um, integration standpoint with the internet and then and then Salesforce is from the sales and customer facing standpoint. So now they've got a really good built with love, top level, top stack for that entire uh, ecosystem of um, applications they have. And, you know, I can see them doing really interesting things with it, like the, like Salesforce has the opportunity to net make Slack free, not just yeah. free, not just a freemium version, completely free and sales and Slack connect to be free. That will really make people like Google and Microsoft start getting worried. So, so it's a fairer fight now. I still think the company is going to be great. I think Salesforce will realize that value that we hope to realize. Um, and it's going to become very interesting to see as Salesforce, Microsoft and Google continue to battle it out over the next five, 10 years.
1: So as part of this deal, Slack shareholders will get close to an eighth of a share in Salesforce, as well as um, about $27 in cash. Emmett, Slack was a position in the Horizon portfolio that you manage. Are you happy to become a Salesforce shareholder or will you have to rethink about your holdings now after this deal?
2: Mm. Well... I've always admired Salesforce and it's, it's you know, you go through your investing life and you always talk, you kind of lament the ones you missed. And, and I kind of have repeatedly lamented Salesforce and now it's being thrown on my lap. If yes. I so choose, I have to actually take an action to not be a Salesforce shareholder. Um, so how it's played out for me and Horizon is I'm getting all the cash I invested in Slack back plus some Plus a, a slug of of Salesforce shares, which effectively is a tantamount to a full position for me in the service. But anyway, um, I'm still considering really what route to take. And uh, as I said to Horizon subscribers, I uh, many years ago I invested in Marvel, the the superhero guys, and along came Disney and bought Marvel with cash and shares, just the way Salesforce has bought Slack with cash and shares. Um, and if I can, I, I, I do recall, I, I recall the feeling of the decision, you know, like you're looking at Disney, which was a powerhouse, an indisputable leader in the entertainment industry. And I very much feel it's the exact same type of decision now. There's an yeah. indisputable leader in the B2B space. And I, if I'd have to go back in my records, but I think I sold my Disney shares when, when they bought Marvel. With yeah. Cash and shares, and then they came along again and bought Pixar, which I was also a shareholder in, um with the exact same deal, which was cash and shares and It kind of felt like the universe was trying to orientate me towards being a disney shareholder and and uh whatever however it went for me, and I'd have to check my records, as I say, I am up tenfold on my Disney shares, which were placed into my brokerage account without me having to take an action, and I today believe it's one of the greatest investments. Uh, and will remain so for the rest of of my life. So, um, I, I, I the parallels for me are very strong. I think Salesforce. Uh, I've never. I suppose the analogy is Salesforce is analogous to the. It is the Disney of B two B software. Yeah, like it is the giant. It is the dominant force. And and as Rory uh, explained, I mean they have suddenly opened the door to businesses like my Wall Street, which up until now were not and are not Salesforce customers and all of a sudden this land and expand model that we've spoken about on the podcast before uh, is like supercharged for Salesforce. They're suddenly in, uh, I can't remember, I think they have 12 million daily active users. So they've suddenly bought 12 million professionals' attention for a large part of their working day and that will inevitably lead to better things for the business. So to your question, uh, I'm not. Sure, yet. Uh, Salesforce doesn't necessarily fit all the attributes I look for in investment most notably it's so big right now yeah uh, the question is can kind of 10x from here and uh well yes it can <laughs> it's not beyond the realms of possibility uh so i'm just thinking about it james my i'm just you know i'm not happy with the acquisition but it's it's not a, it's not an awful outcome i yeah. think that salesforce paid well like they, they really wrote a big check so i think we're doing okay
1: I think you made a good point there as well as those 12 million new customers. They're probably customers Salesforce wouldn't have had before as they largely deal yeah. with bigger clients. Here's one uh, question for both of you just to finish off this part. Um, what's the best company that's been bought out from underneath you like this? Rory, you mentioned Ellie May already. Was that the the uh, best company that got bought out from underneath you?
0: Um, it's a tough one. Mesa Robotics was one that I think we really got screwed on um, James for your <laughs> to use your term yeah.
1: <laughs> what about you Emmet? You, you mentioned uh, exactly the same oh, yeah, no,
2: but no I, I think Mazor Robotics I was a shareholder as well they were the mini intuitive surgical focused on a different procedure entirely I think it was spinal surgery and injuries and they had such a patent book and uh, technology that worked and I was very disappointed because I really think it was it was all set to go on to bigger and better things Absolutely. Uh, Let's move on then. And we've spoken already
1: about some of the things that will never go back to the way they are, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it seems like cinema is definitely going to be one of those. Um, On Monday of this week, Warner Brothers announced that all of its 2021 film roster, including the massively anticipated blockbusters like The Matrix 4 and Dune, they'll all stream on HBO Max on the same day that they hit cinemas. The company said that this one-year plan was a response to unprecedented times, But of the outbreak, but it's unclear exactly how the excitement and exclusivity of theatrical releases will ever be recovered from this. Rory, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. What do you think? Is this the the kind of death blow for cinema?
0: Just moving away from the cinema side of it briefly, like the background of this story is amazing. So, uh, there's a New York Times article about this. If anyone wants to read, Warner Brothers approached last month. Approached two of the biggest talent agencies in Hollywood, William Morris Endeavor and Creative Artists, with the idea of releasing. Wonder Woman 1984 on their streaming service, HBO Max, and this was a pretty kind of tense negotiation because both agencies, one represents Gal Gadot, the star of the movie, the other represents Patty Jenkins, the director, so the two, the big question was, okay, how are you going to pay uh, our our uh, clients if you're not getting this big box office release? And so a kind of tense negotiation ended with Warner agreeing that both those people would receive over $10 million, according to people familiar with the deal. So this is who spoke on anonymity and all that Yeah. jazz. Last week, when the company announced that 17 other movies would be released in a similar way, they basically told no one. There was no negotiations. There was no talking to representatives. People were alerted about 90 minutes before the announcement. Wow. And so now some of the biggest talent in Hollywood is feeling pretty burned. Uh, And a lot of questions are going to be asked about, like, how are we going to pay... These people, because the, the way the cinema or the, the film industry works is you have a guaranteed fee, and then there's uh, you know, whether if the film's a mass success, you get a lot of money, if it's a flop, you kind of don't get that much money. So, mm. now the question is, how are you going to measure this? What, how are we going to switch from the old system into a new system that's kind of streaming forward? Um, and Warner Brothers' big competitive advantage for years was a roster of great talent that continuously work with them, and now there's talk of boycotts happening, so yeah, that's they are. They're walking a very thin line, uh, I think. And the other side of that is HBO Max, right, is supposed to be a new competitor to Netflix, right? And when I think of HBO, I think of it representing the very best in home ent- entertainment. Like, that yeah. is their brand equity. Uh, quick fact, HBO wins an Emmy for every $75 million it spends on content versus Amazon, which has to spend $400 million on content. Like, that, wow. that's how good... HBO is at this stuff. It's the studio behind The Wire, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Sex and City, The Sopranos—like the very best of television. And now they seem to be treating it like just a dump of everything. Like that—that that premium content is now sitting beside Too Fast, Too
1: Furious and The Big Bang Theory. You know, I won't like, hear a bad word said about Too Fast, Too Furious <laughs> in this podcast, Rory. Really.
0: Well, I'm just—I just think that they are very close to destroying the brand equity they have with HBO. Um, And it's not even available on Roku. So this is a very slow car crash in my... This is like watching a very slow car crash. Uh, The theatre side is another thing. Look, AMC is down 50% this year, but they're about down 90% from 2016. So this like they already had an awful lot of challenges. And there's a limited amount of sympathy I have with them. Like, why does the theatre cinema industry not have to adapt like everyone else uh, is the question I have for them. So, yeah, look, don't invest in cinema stocks would be my uh, the takeaway from that. And if you think HBO Max is really going to challenge Netflix, I'd think
1: again. Wow. <laughs> that's a big statement. But just to your point there, like Warner Brothers seemed fairly gung-ho with their decision here, but this isn't the first argument that's cropped up around this. There was, um, back in the summer, Universal had a big falling out with the likes of Regal Cinemas and AMC um, theatre chains over... Um, They just basically said that, I think it was over the Trolls movie, was it?
0: Yeah, and AMC threatened to never release, never show another Universal film again. Like, that was the most empty threat I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) No, no, I'll drain by myself. Don't throw me the life raft. (laughs) Uh, Look, yeah, look, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. And um, the the new CEO of Disney said... Famously, a couple of months ago, and asked this question: Would they be bypassing the cinema? As he said, "We're going to do what's right for our customers," and that I think he kind of said a lot in that in that sentence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on then and take a quick look at the things that are going on in my Wall Street at the minute. We published December stock of the month selection earlier this week. After a year of riding on the crest of some massive gains in technology stocks, including July selection, which has almost trebled in value at time of recording, we've taken a different tack this month and go with a retail stalwart that still presents a great opportunity given the prevailing consumer trends. Don't forget that we'll also be publishing the Stock of the Month podcast on Monday, December 14th. This is an exclusive podcast for My Wall Street subscribers only, where Rory and I chat about the Stock of the Month selection in more depth and answer any questions you might have about it. If you're not a My Wall Street member yet but want to listen into this podcast, make sure to start your free trial of My Wall Street by using the link in the notes for today's show. Don't forget as well that the next podcast out in two weeks is the last podcast of 2020. Um, this will actually be released on Saturday, December 26th, as opposed to Christmas Day the 25th. Uh, so make sure to tune in as we review the year that was and make some of our big predictions for 2021. Guys, do you want to remind me what your predictions were for 2020? Emmett, what was yours?
2: Uh, I, 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 I kind of took a safe enough bet. I think I said that we'd see one of the major bricks and mortar retailers go under and um I honestly, I swear to God, I did not know that coronavirus was coming. So, are you behind coronavirus? So, yeah, <laughs> I, re- I, I'm, I refuse to even acknowledge that question. I'm neither, Rory, what was yeah. yours?
0: Uh, something about beyond me. I said they wouldn't do well. Looks like they have been
2: being cut in
1: half or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. There's still there's still about three weeks left in the year. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to Jargon Busters then. So as I'm sure most of our listeners know, we're an Irish company. As such, we've got a, a lot of Irish listeners to this podcast. Recently, we got a question in asking about investing in ETFs in Ireland and the tax treatment surrounding this. Emmett,
2: Oh, thanks. <laughs> OK, well, right off the bat, um, I am not a tax advisor. I am not an expert in tax all I know is I pay it every year, and I pay all of it. So, um, but what I would say is that ETFs are taxed in a complex way here in Ireland, and and um, the, it's very important to understand what you're getting into. In the US, if you buy an ETF, exchange traded fund, it is treated as a, as an, a straight up general equity, um, and therefore is kind of easy to reconcile it year end tax returns. But that's not so the case uh, in Ireland because when you buy an ETF uh, in Ireland, their investor could be subject to capital gains tax at 33%, uh, dirt taxes, it's known at 41% or income tax uh, at their own marginal rate, which I think is like 55%. So there are so many variables when you buy an ETF and, and they're taxed depending on where they're domiciled, which really creates the complexity. So there's Irish domiciled ETFs, uh, there's EU uh, domiciled ETFs, which is um, ETFs other than Ireland. And then, of course, there's the US and, and other jurisdictions. And each one of those ETFs has its own um, tax profile. As far as I know, an Irish domiciled ETF has um, a 41% tax on exit. And an EU uh, EU ETF is the same. You can see the complexity here. So yeah, you really exactly. need to know what you're buying. Um, And it, it, it's a long and Pretty boring subject. I could go on about it all day, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I
1: know it's completely necessary, but I love the disclaimer you always give the start of that because it sounds like just the Revenue Commission is just listening in.
2: <laughs> Rory. Everybody listens, don't they? Yeah. Everyone in Cayman <laughs> Islands listens in. We're the number one, sorry, excuse me. We're the number one podcast in the Cayman Islands, not just for business, for everything. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you to everyone in the Cayman Islands. Um, and we're the number one in, where else, Rory? Latvia. Latvia we're number one in Latvia not just for business for the whole shebang so thank you, people of Latvia for the love being in Latvia is... was that the name of a band
1: What I can see is
0: in 10 years there's going to be like a spike in Latvian billionaires because of our great of us
1: there you go Rory I'm going to throw this next question over to you before we completely lose the run of this podcast <laughs> um, so you were asked about this on Twitter but I'd love to hear your thoughts here on Callaway Golf as an investment
0: yeah, so Patrick Gilbert asked me this question on Twitter and I was kind of bearish on the whole sector for a number of years uh, in terms of golf because one, I was under the impression that golf participation was in steady decline, but as is often the case, I was wrong and Patrick linked me to a great thread by Alan Soclough who really broke down a good opportunity in Callaway Golf in particular. This move towards casual golf through a company called Top Golf Entertainment, which I'd never heard of before, but which Callaway has just acquired, so I'm much more interested than I was in it than I was uh, last week. Uh, I haven't had a chance to dig deep into the financials yet, but it looks as, looks like a lot of things are going well for it. Like participation is on the rise, young people are taking up the sport again, and there is a real business in the apparel, uh, in golf apparel. Um, so it's not going to be added to see the app this month but it's certainly piqued my interest um, and yeah take note other Twitter followers next time you want to pitch a business to me follow Patrick's example include a link to a great thread like the one he did for Alan's Breakdown and yeah he might get a, he might get mentioned on the, the Stock Club podcast
1: <laughs> Don't just shout tickers at you <laughs> 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 This last question is a really good question I think it was actually um, Anne-Marie one of the employees here at my Wall Street that came up with it And I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this. So would you ever invest in a business that you don't like? So it might be a good investment opportunity, but you don't necessarily like the company. Emmett, I'll come to you first. Uh,
2: It would depend on the reason why I don't like it. So if I have a kind of a a moral objection to what the business is doing or how they're going about business, no, I wouldn't. There's plenty of great investment opportunities in fact, there's near infinite choice of opportunities um, of businesses that are fully aligned with my belief set and my, my own internal moral, moral compass. Uh, so I kind of think the short answer is uh, it depends. <laughs> um, I would invest in a business I don't like if it was a hash machine and it was undervalued and I believe that there was an implicit value there that would be unlocked and it doesn't do anything that I have a particular objection to so it's somewhere between maybe and yes and no <laughs> <laughs> what,
1: a, what a clear and concise answer oh,
2: I, I, I pride myself on concise answers
1: <laughs> Rory what about you somewhere between yes and maybe
0: Nah, no, I'll be a bit more concise. I'll, I'll go with no. Um, you know, like the, the word for amateur comes from the French word to, of the meaning to love. You know, it's, to, it's to do something for the love of it rather than the fact yeah. that you're being paid for it. Um, we're happy and we're lucky enough to be paid for what we do and we love what we do and in a roundabout way, I suppose, like the amateur investor, is there such a thing as an amateur investor? Because they're hoping to make income from it at some point, but like it's something you're doing in your yeah. spare time researching businesses. You know, you're not being, mm. you're not sitting at a desk doing it every day. Why Why bother with things you're not in love with? Why bother with, with companies that you don't like when there's so much opportunity out there? There's so many great businesses out there. Like you're, gonna, you're yeah. going to, you're going to, you're not going to get every great investment. No investor's going to invest in every great company you're going to miss some big ones over the years you're never going to buy at the bottom and sell at the top so stop worrying about that invest in companies you admire yeah like that's just much more fun and that's what i would do if i was if i wasn't doing it for a living and it's what we kind of do in my wall street as well we don't pick companies we don't really like so yeah but my 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 answer would be a, a harsh no
1: okay great thank you very much let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out the podcast so over the past few episodes I've asked you guys to pitch me your favourite razor and blade company, your favourite pick and shovel company, your favourite land and expand company. Today, in celebration of our non-tech stock of the month pick, I want you guys to pick your favourite brick and mortar retailer of the moment. Rory, I'll come to you first.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go with what well, I think is the best in class in terms of brick and mortar retail. It's Home Depot, the king of home improvements. Um, you know, I think a lot of people know this business just for the kind of the warehouse business where you go and you buy uh, what did I call it last time was it steel things <laughs> someone <remind> yeah,
2: <laughs>
0: Luke's, Luke's laughing here Home Depot sells a lot of really heavy things that aren't really very high price items like tins of paint metal for your gaff Yeah, and so it's <laughs> Dublin expression yeah so that's a Dublin thing metal for your gaff <laughs> gaff equals house. Yeah. our home Bricks and stuff. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's the place you go when you want to do some DIY in your home. But they've actually got a much more. They've got a, a, a much bigger business behind it. They've got a MRO business, which is maintenance, repair, and operations, which does which provides everything to the kind of professional tradesmen like plumbers, electricians, janitors, um, and they've just got yeah. you know a great footprint, great mind share. Uh, and yeah, great employees, employee, the employees love working there. It's it's a great culture and a great business going forward. And I think the coronavirus is actually going to be a net benefit to them over the long term.
1: I'd like to point out that off air in my Wall Street, every time I've asked Rory or said to Rory that we should have Home Depot as stock at the moment, I've been called boring and predictable. And <laughs> 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 so uh,
2: that's true. That is true. I'm I remember that feel a
1: bit vindicated now. Uh, Emmett, what's your favorite bricks <laughs> and mortar retailer?
2: Well, it's the same kind of person who goes to Home Depot. And before I tell you my answer, I know that a few eyebrows will be raised uh, from the My Wall Street uh, membership, based on it's for Duluth Holdings. I, okay. I like Duluth, and the reason eyebrows will be raised is it's currently in quarantine in our app. And and the reason it's in quarantine is we we uh, we put companies in there through a democratic process. Doesn't mean that. Uh, all, all of us are always aligned at all points in time. Duluth Holdings, it, it kind of sells casual workwear. And um, the reason I like it is it's small. Its market cap is is sub $400 million. It's profitable. Uh, it has its own front door out to fresh air for the most yeah. part. So these are standalone units where customers can pull up outside in their car and walk through the front door without entering a shopping mall, in turn making it a, a little bit uh, more appealing for shoppers during the pandemic. Um, but what I really most like about Duluth was I listened into the last conference call and I just thought the management team were remarkably lucid. They had an absolutely wonderful view of where they're going. They're not trying to grow... Uh, at breakneck speed but they're trying to grow very very sensibly so I, I like the business and I think that for very long term investors $380 million business that's profitable in retail selling uh, apparel which I generally have an aversion to it's one I, I do like
1: Yeah the, there was a tough couple of years for Dilute, but they seem to have been recovering this year despite the kind of other tailwinds or headwinds I, I mean that um, bricks and mortar stores were facing so interesting yeah. pick Um, So that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. From the three of us here today, thanks for listening and happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Research your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie.
0: My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. From local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap2Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com tapiphone.